Welcome to Art of the Float, where float centers thrive, our weekly podcast where we share our stories of starting and running our float centers. We love it when you join us as we work together to raise our education level on building, marketing, and running our float centers. As always, you can find us at Art of the Float on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at artofthefloat.com to find show notes, links, pictures from every episode, all that good stuff. I'm your host tonight, Dylan. I own the float shop with my wife, Sandra Calm, in Portland, Oregon. And we are down in Amy again this week. She is working so hard to get her float center open. And uh, my gosh, the um, city is just not pulling back any punches. I'm going to do my best to save uh, any information on what's going on with her until she rejoins the show. But my heart goes out to her. And and uh, my gosh, we're, we're all crossing our fingers for her to uh, get Float Alchemy open. Uh, so really looking forward to hearing back from her. Also, incredibly excited to introduce Dr. Saib in, in just a few minutes here. Dr. Saib Kalsa is working at Liber and has a lot of information he wants to share with the float community this week uh, and the kind of research that he'll be and is currently doing at Liber. Uh, but before we, get to the, uh, before we get to that, I want to thank Austin White and Neil Smock for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you so much. And I also want to give a shout out to the Float Conference. Uh, Dr. Stibe's been there. August 18th and 19th this year. It's officially summer, which means it is time to start thinking about the float conference. It's time to get your tickets if you haven't already. And uh, they're actually looking for people if you want to put on something on the Friday, some kind of an event, probably float related. Uh, you're, you're invited to do that. Go to floatconference.com to check it out and uh, be sure to get your tickets well in advance as well. Also, if you want to put a face to the people in the industry uh, that you email all the time, talk with them on the Float Collective Facebook group and uh, let people know that you're, you're going to the Float Conference. Again, floatconference.com is where you want to go. One more thing before we get started here is Escape Pod. EscapePodTank.com is where you want to go. Also, can we please link a picture to his hilarious advertisement for his float tanks? Classic Jeremy here. Uh, <laughs> uh, check out his, his float tanks. The... Um, his classic escape pod, he's also got uh, the Earth and the Aphelion float tanks, which are just wild, super cool. I think I said, um, I, actually, he gives the name of the type of plastic that he uses for those float tanks. I think I got that wrong in the right ad. Really beautiful, slick, uh, that you can't just get with fiberglass, the way that he has this plastic molded. Uh, but they're durable, beautiful float tanks, and I think he focuses on the simplicity of it all. It doesn't have to be uh, super confounding to, to de- be able to deliver these floats. Uh, also, a wonderful person to get to know uh, and will provide you wonderful customer service. I hear it time and time again from people who go into business uh, with Escape Pod is that uh, Jeremy, the owner, uh, is always there uh, willing to help you out and, and set you up, whether it's a new tank or a used float tank of his. He's, he's there all hours of the day. Really wonderful. So focus on the sensory deprivation experience itself with an escape pod tank and go to escapepodtank.com to check them out and uh, get in contact with Jeremy. Uh, we're going to save my uh, intro as far as like we generally spend the first 20 minutes talking about our weeks and all that without without Amy. It's a little, little lonely talking about my float center. So I just want to uh, jump in here and say hello to Dr. Saib Khalsa. Welcome. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Absolutely. It's truly my pleasure. Uh, really excited to have you here and talk about what it is that you're doing at Liber. Um, I know it's float related, but I also know there are a lot of questions around what's going on. With that being said, I would really like to get to know you a little bit better and introduce you to the rest of the float community and talk about um, 
your history uh, in the medical field and how you got drawn to float research. Sure, thanks. Uh, so uh, I'm a, uh, sci- a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist by training. Um, I guess sort of uh, back in uh, my undergraduate days when I looked at sort of the kind of career path that I wanted to follow, um, you know, I was really attracted to doing neuroscience research, but uh, also really attracted to uh, medicine and, you know, wanting to help uh, people, improve people's health, um, but also understand sort of the neurological basis mm-hmm. of uh, disease. And so I, I found out about these um, medical scientist training programs, which combine uh, MD and PhD training. So uh, like the uh, indecisive overachiever that I was, I looked at both and I said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, and so uh, I, that's the sort of training that I got. Um, I, I differentiated um, I thought I was going to be a neurologist, but actually uh, ended up um, becoming really interested in psychiatry. Hmm. Uh, so I did uh, postgraduate uh, residency training in psychiatry at UCLA, uh, and um, I'm living the dream currently, uh, integrating both clinical practice with uh, research. Seriously, yes. And and so right out of school, started doing float research. I feel like there maybe was a little <laughs> a few steps in between. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, my, my interest in float research, um, came through, um, uh, interest in, uh, a process called interoception, mm-hmm. which is something that I've written about, uh, uh, quite extensively, uh, and also, um, presented, uh, at the float conference the first time I, uh, attended, which, um, I think it was, uh, 2015, August of 2015. Okay. Um, so if you look at the float conference uh, websites, there, you'll find uh, you'll find my talk there. Yeah, we'll um, but basically, yeah, basically it's it's sort of um, uh, interoception uh, relates to um, this process by which uh, your brain kind of maps what's happening inside your body um, and uh, and sort of links what's happening in your body with what's happening. Uh, in the world outside, and um, and and it's this very important process for uh, emotional experience, um, for mental and physical health. Um, and uh, I started out um, after residency, uh, really focusing my lab's uh, activities on trying to understand um, interoception and its role in mental health, um, particularly mm-hmm. in a lot of the um, psychiatric patients that that I had um, experienced treating, and. Um, and it was sort of probably a, a couple years into uh, that experience um, that I got introduced to floating by uh, by my colleague uh, Justin Feinstein. Mm-hmm. Can I go back just a little bit? Ed? Sure. If we're talking about interoception in a real layman's way, would it be being able to count my heartbeats? Would that be that kind of awareness of what's going on in your body, um, or is it different than that? So, so it's it's how your brain senses your inner body. Okay. So um, if you think about other senses, um, like uh, let's use, uh, we're on a podcast, so let's use hearing uh-huh. as an example of your classic sense. Um, would you agree that there are sounds, I mean, you're aware of the sound of my voice right now, correct? correct. Yeah. Um, but would you agree that there are probably sounds um, that are uh, happening in your environment around you that you're not aware of? Yes, yes. So uh, does that mean that your brain is not processing those sounds, though? 
You're, you're, right. You're, it it right? certainly is. So we, we've been house shopping, my wife and I. We've looked at plenty of houses right by a freeway. And we, we know that eventually we'll stop hearing that freeway, but does it still have an impact on us because our brain is processing it? Exactly. That's a, and that's a great example because that's an example of something where you're, you're, you know, your brain and your nervous system sort of learn to attenuate a signal that is no longer that relevant. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, so there are things that uh, your brain processes all the time inside your body um, that um, may have been relevant at one point and now are no longer relevant, mm-hmm. um, or more commonly uh, are just not relevant for your you know day to day conscious awareness. Right. right? Um, and then eventually, if they become relevant, you'll feel it. Right. Or you you know or you'll you know if if. Let's say there's, um, you know, going back to the freeway example, if, let's say there's some, um, you know, uh, there's a police chase that happens. Mm-hmm. You know, your ears might perk up because you might notice the change in sound, but mm-hmm. then it passes and then you go back to being unaware. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm a little bit confused because that feels external to me, but we're talking mm-hmm. about internal. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're talking about um, maybe my, my stomach hurting would be mm-hmm. something like I'm not normally aware of my stomachs, mm-hmm. how it feels, but then I can feel like, oh, wow, there is some, something going on. Maybe, maybe that fish wasn't mm-hmm. right. That, that would be interoception. Exactly. And so, so it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's another sense. It's another type of uh, way that your, your brain senses information um, that is happening um, in the world. It just happens to be the world inside your body. Okay, perfect. And I think part of why I wanted to really make sure that was clear and understand that is because I think it has to do with what you're doing today. Is that is that true? It it it, it does. And and in fact, uh, you know, I think when when Justin um, introduced me to floating and said, you know, you gotta you gotta try this. Um, you know, uh, I think. Uh, one of the uh, elements behind his suggestion, and you'll have to ask him for more uh, about what his reasons were, but, but um, you know, uh, one of the, the reasons I'm, I'm sure was, was the experience that most people have, even at their first float, which is, you know, this very prominent sense of their heartbeat and the prominent mm-hmm. sense uh, of their breathing, right? Um, and we've now done a couple studies and, and in fact, published a couple studies um, in um, psychiatric patients, uh, individuals with a broad variety of, of um, depression and anxiety-related concerns who, um, even in their first float, um, notice these heightened changes in their heartbeat sensation and mm-hmm. heightened changes in their breathing sensations during a float. Uh, can you talk about the uh, group that you're going to be working with or are currently working with? Uh, Absolutely. So, um, so we're currently running a study, uh, it's our second study um, in, with individuals with uh, eating disorders um, and a particular kind of eating disorder called anorexia nervosa. Um, so um, a little bit of background about what anorexia nervosa is please, and, um, please. Uh, and, and why, might, why might we be interested in, in studying it. And, and this is also now a shameless plug to my talk at uh, my second talk at the float conference, <laughs> nice. which is uh, in 2016, um, uh, or no, I actually, no, I think it was 2017. Sorry, last year's talk. Just last year. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah because, Either way, we'll, we'll throw up the links on the website and yeah, make sure yeah. people find it. <laughs> There's much, probably a much better, uh, explanation of it than I'm going to give now. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, anorexia nervosa is, is, um, one of the, um, sort of most common eating disorders that are diagnosed, 
Um, it uh, is really a devastating disorder. We really don't um, have a clear understanding of what causes it, but um, it has a very high long-term mortality rate. So um, across the lifespan, about one out of five people who are diagnosed with a disorder will succumb to it. Uh, wow. So in other words, they'll die because of it. Okay. Um, uh, these are um, sort of, uh, the, the disorder is, is sort of uh, characterized by three main features. So the first, um, which is probably the most uh, um, uh, well-recognized, is, is this really, really low weight. So these are people who have very um, underweight body states. Um, and um, the second kind of component that's, uh, that's linked to this is um, they have a fear of um, becoming fat. And this sort of sense that um, that um, that uh, anything that they any food that they eat will lead to them immediately gaining weight mm -hmm. um, and to leading their body to grow to a size that is beyond what they perceive uh, to be desirable. Mm -hmm. um, and then that links to the third characteristic, which is body image disturbance. So, um, so even though these people are usually very uh, underweight, um, in some cases uh, look emaciated. Um, they fear that they're going to get fat. Um, they fear that they are fat. Um, and, uh, and when they look in the mirror, um, you know, uh, and when they think about their body, you know, they, they see a body that is much larger than what other people see. And mm -hmm. so that, that's sort of the distortion. Mm -hmm. um, and they also feel that um, when they think about, like, um, the characteristics of their body, like how it looks physically, aesthetically, um, is it attractive or unattractive, is it misshapen? Um, they really sort of relate to their body as having these um, distorted characteristics that other people will view as ugly and that they themselves view as ugly and distorted. And so um, it, it's really, these are the three sort of core um, defining features that are essential for the diagnosis. Um, and, um, and that's sort of some of the most common things that people focus on in, in research. Um, do we know, um, much like cancer, we'd want to know where, how somebody gets cancer, where it, where it starts or how we could prevent it. Do we know nature nurture? Is this something, uh, something somebody's expressing from their genes? Or is it uh, the environment that somebody's around? Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's, a, and it's a great question. So um, we know that, um, that there's a preponderance of... Um, uh, anxiety associated with this disorder. So, so people with um, anorexia nervosa um, oftentimes have co-occurring anxiety disorders. And when you look in their, in their family history, their family tree, um, you'll oftentimes see um, uh, family members, first-degree family members with um, the disorder, anorexia mm -hmm. nervosa or another type of eating disorder. Um, so that sort of suggests there's an, el an element of genetics to it. Um, but we also see in those same family members uh, and even unaffected family members, um, uh, in other words, family members who don't have eating disorders, mm -hmm. you'll also see a heightened um, presentation of anxiety disorders there. Oh, interesting. Okay. And when you look back in these, um, uh, you ask them sort of, at, you know, at how were you as a child, right? Like, what was your temperament like? What was your personality like? Oftentimes, these are people who will say that they were highly anxious as kids um, that they were um, very um, uh, rule-abiding, um, uh -huh. right, and very um, um, uh, sort of sensitive to um, negative feedback from other people. Um, so there's, there's sort of this um, 
uh, understanding in the literature that um, that genetics has something to do with it. I mean, you know, nature, nurture, of course, uh, to some extent, but but really the specifics seem to be linked to, you know, fi- you know, history, family histories of eating disorders, family histories of anxiety disorders that contribute some personality characteristics um, that are present at a young age, even before any sort of eating disorder develops. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of specific genes, right, sort of the other, uh, you know, getting digging down a little more, um, th- there really isn't a lot known about the genetics of it. There, there are some, um, you know, the, the, the world of genetics is changing rapidly and using the most uh, advanced um, most recent tools, um, there was a relatively um, large study in the history of in, uh, uh, anorexia nervosa genetics that was done that is very small in the context of, you know, the standard genetic models mm-hmm. that found that um, there was some g- evidence for genes that were linked to metabolism that played a role oh, um, wow. in, in the disorder. So, okay. you know, I would say our, our, our understanding of, of where this disorder comes from is really... Um, not as well established as we'd like. It's growing. Um, uh, it certainly, um, you know, is is outweighed by the the, the devastation that this disease um, wreaks. You know, in terms of the mortality um, uh, and in terms of the cost associated with treating it, um, and the relatively low treatment responses. Um, so we're we're kind of um, we're studying a disorder that that um, really is is would benefit from any sort of new uh, tools that can be used for diagnosis or treatment. Got it. While you were speaking, I, I couldn't help but think of Emily Norin, who's a, um, uh, well, gosh, started out as a floater at the float shop and uh, had anorexia, uh, considers herself cured from anorexia, uh, has become a, the manager of the float shop, uh, wrote a book about it. And um, she, I mean, when you Unsinkable. were describing... Unsinkable. Yes, thank you. <laughs> when... Uh, you were talking about, we'll put a link to that in there too, um, <laughs> uh, describing the person that, that sounded like her, right? That, that sounded like, um, I mean, her training for ballet and for dance, like mm-hmm. just being so, um, I don't know if obedient is the right word, but adhering Perfectionistic. To, yes, yes. And, and the control, all of that, um, that just, uh, just sounded so, so familiar. Um, is, does she, you, you know her story, obviously, mm-hmm. um, is she the type of person um, that you're researching now? Um, yeah. So, um, so I, I, I've met Emily, and and um, certainly um, was inspired by uh, by her story um, uh, of how floating helped her in her recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it sounds like she um, did have anorexia nervosa, although I, I haven't. Um, really done a, a, a medical evaluation or a psychiatric evaluation. Sure. So, so this is, this is all kind of through her report. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely, for sure, she struggled with an eating disorder, um, and, um, and, and has seen some, it sounds like some ebbs and flows, which is not uncommon in, in that disorder as well. Sure. Um, uh, what was, what was, uh, interesting to me was, was this sense that, uh, she talked about where she felt like, um, you know, after eating a meal, um, floating was, was really the only environment that she found helped her um, to kind of tolerate a lot of the distress that often comes with mm. eating meals, um, and particularly um, after having uh, eaten a meal and sort of um, waiting for, for it to digest and, 
you know, uh, learning to, um, to um, handle feelings of fullness. Oftentimes, um, individuals with anorexia nervosa find stomach sensations and, and belly and, and other gastrointestinal sensations to be highly discomforting. Hmm. Um, and it sounds like for her, uh, the float environment was a place that, um, that really allowed her um, to feel calm and secure and, 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 and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during the, well, where are you at with your research? Can you tell me a little bit about what's going on? What's, what's the focus? Sure. So, uh, so last year uh, at the float conference, um, we presented um, the initial results of our first clinical trial looking at the uh, effects of floating in anorexia nervosa. Um, so the, the, the one-line summary of that was uh, we, it was a safety study, and we were looking to see um, could individuals um, with a history of anorexia nervosa um, physically um, tolerate uh, the float environment. Hmm. Okay. Um, we, we were looking to see whether um, people have blood pressure changes um, when they uh, stand up from the float. Um, uh, if it, you know, uh, in the um, in the eating disorder world, uh, a lot of times these patients are dehydrated when they're acutely ill, and when they stand up, you know, they feel dizzy and their blood pressure drops, and it makes yeah. them at risk for falling. Yeah. Uh, so you can imagine if you were going to do a float study with um, inpatients, um, you know, they're they're in their birthday suit and they stand up and there's nobody around, and yeah. the last thing you would want is for even a single person to to hit their head and. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did a safety study to see whether um, there were any changes in blood pressure um, when people went from lying down uh, during a 90-minute float to standing up. So we, did a, we did a lying, sitting, then standing protocol. Um, and we didn't find any evidence uh, of um, what's called orthostasis, so a drop in blood pressure on standing. So that was, that was a really, really positive. That was uh, the primary outcome for the study. Um, of course, we were... Uh, very interested in looking at other outcomes um, that are related to um, some of the experiences that Emily described and some of the experiences that we'd seen in, in some of the other patients with anxiety disorders and, and depression. Hmm. Um, so we, we looked at those. Those are called secondary outcomes. So oh, they're, okay. kind of, they're kind of um, of interest, but, but not of primary interest to the study. Sure. Because um, we weren't uh, intending the study design to really focus on that. But mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple interesting things that came out of that. So uh, we saw um, that um, people, uh, the patients reported uh, lower levels of anxiety from before uh, to after the float. Um, their stress levels were lower. Um, their uh, levels of muscle tension were lower. Um, and interestingly, uh, we also found that um, their uh, uh, body image seemed to change. Um, so if you remember, that was that, you know, body image disturbance is this third core feature of, of anorexia nervosa. Um, and we found that um, one of the measures of body image disturbance, um, uh, called, uh, which is a visual um, body image measure um, called the uh, photographic figure rating scale, um, we found that um, basically um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a scale where people um, uh, look at different, uh, look at bodies uh, of different sizes and they pick the one that sort of best fits mm. um, the body that they, that they see when wow. they look in the mirror uh-huh. or the body that they want to have. Oh, okay. Right. Um, and and we've, we found that, um, that uh, floating seemed to acutely improve uh, what's called body dissatisfaction. Hmm. 
So it's sort of the comparison between um, the body that you currently see and the body that you want to have. Um, and and that, that, that discrepancy was sort of attenuated or, or lessened and, after and floating. What's the, and after one float, or is this after a dozen floats over time? What does that yeah. measurement look like? Yeah, so that, this was a, a four-float study, uh, okay. and we, we, um, we found it pretty much uh, after every float. Um, so Immediately so. after they're, they're asked to, to take this? Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Wow. And um, are you able to share any of the numbers, like percentage-wise, how, like, how drastic the improvement, how many people marked that, uh, that improvement? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. So, um, you know, the, the finding really was based on an average finding. So, mm-hmm. so we kind of uh, averaged across the groups. Um, so on average, um, the group showed this improvement. Um, of course, there were some people who uh, didn't show the improvement. Sure. Um, I, I'll have to look back because I'm, I'm not recalling off the top of my head what the exact percentages were. But it certainly was significant enough for you to, for you to bring it up and, yep. and talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it. It, it was statistically significant and, um, and, and certainly uh, clinically significant. One of, the, one of the things that I didn't mention is that um, uh, current treatments for anorexia nervosa really... Uh, are, are, let's, say, let's say you have a, 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 a family member or a friend who has the disorder um, and they, they really they become acutely ill, they, their body weight is, is very, very low. Um, you know, they may be medically hospitalized for a period of time just to stabilize their mm-hmm. medical condition. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes, uh, you know, those stays are very brief and then they'll be um, psychiatrically hospitalized. Mm. And most of the treatment that they'll receive really focuses on helping bring their body weight back up. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a programming that's related to the fear of, 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 um, of becoming fat um, and also body image disturbance. But it, it turns out that um, body image disturbance is one of the last things to improve after weight restoration. So even when people are discharged, you know, from the acute inpatient stay, yeah. um, you know, they still need to continue outpatient treatment. Sure. And they, they oftentimes, have, oftentimes have body image disturbance that even persists for years. And, so the and fact I that, assume that would mean there's also a lot of falling back into it then because of that. Like, I mean, if that yeah. still exists. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So we, yeah, we did a, we just recently did a, um, unrelated to floating, we did a systematic review of all the studies that had um, categorized uh, what's called relapse and, and recovery. Um, mm. And uh, we found that uh, about within one year following discharge from an inpatient stay, about 50% uh, of patients will relapse within that one year period. Wow. So, you know, uh, you, you have to kind of wonder if body image disturbance is, is still distorted and, and, you know, these are still people who have a high level of anxiety, you know, um, if you could intervene on some of those variables and improve them, yeah. could that potentially um, have an impact both on, you know, the rate of somebody's recovery during an inpatient stay, but also could it have an impact on um, lessening that relapse rate? Mm-hmm. Very exciting concept. Yeah. Uh, how big was the sample size of this group? So uh, that study, uh, we enrolled uh, 23 subjects, um, and uh, 21 of them completed uh, four floats. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, can you go into why a couple dropped out? 
Yeah, sure. So the the two people who dropped out um, dropped out after their second float. Um, and uh, in that study, sort of uh, the way that we um, conducted it was with a gradual introduction to the float environment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the first float um, was actually um, in uh, an environment that um, was not uh, didn't include water. <laughs> It was in this uh, zero gravity chair mm-hmm. um, in a sound and light attenuated environment, but it mm-hmm. wasn't the same environment. Uh, it's not this, it wasn't attenuated to the same degree as you would find in a usual uh, in a usual float chamber. Sure. Um, uh, and the idea there was really we were trying to um, help uh, the patients accommodate to the float environment gradually, and and just even learn for ourselves. You know, could they? tolerate um, lying supine for 90 minutes, um, having their blood pressure measured intermittently and, and that kind of thing, um, with their clothing on, mm-hmm. with the idea being that, that if they could um, tolerate that, then we could gradually introduce them to, to greater and greater degrees of floating. So the second float uh, was, the, um, uh, was their first float in a pool of water, and it was in our open pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and and a couple of the people dropped out um, uh, after that point. Um, um, if I remember correctly, um, uh, I think one of them um, didn't like the water, um, didn't like sort of maybe what it did to their hair, um, mm. and then um, maybe one of them felt like it made them a little bit more anxious um, oh, in, in their first float. Yeah. Okay. And can I ask, so uh, we had... Dr. Feinstein on recently, and he, he was uh, talking about his published report, his published mm-hmm. study, and how mm-hmm. um, uh, he was taking a lot of metrics, uh, measurements after people came out, or at least, actually they were kind of self-measuring, you know, mm-hmm. how positive they felt or mm-hmm. reduced anxiety, all these different uh, metrics. Were you also asking those similar questions, mm-hmm. uh, or is it very specific to the anorexia? No, so so um, the, the nice... The, thing about working together on these studies is that um, we get to ask the same kinds of questions yeah. across studies. Cool. Um, so, so we did add some questions that we thought were uh, more relevant for eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what was really nice is that we were, it, it allowed us to kind of look at um, something called the effect size. So, so sort of the magnitude or the size of, um, uh, of the difference from pre to post float. Um, in the anxiety change, um, you know, in the stress level change, in the muscle tension, et cetera. Um, and what was interesting to me is that, um, you know, this is a totally new population for floating, um, but we see uh, changes with the, the acute float um, that were in the same direction as with the um, anxious and depressed patients. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the one wrinkle is that um, the effect size, right, was a little bit smaller. The magnitude oh. was a little lower in the eating disorder group. Oh, interesting. Do you have any speculations on why that might be? Um, I mean, it's 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 a different population. Uh, I would say, uh, clinically, um, on average, they might be more severely uh, affected by the disorder. Um, I'm I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Okay. Uh, I mean, one, one idea could be uh, that um, although these patients do have uh, what's called comorbid or co-occurring anxiety and depression, you know, it really is the eating disorder features that are primary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it's possible that, um, that float, uh, the float environment just has maybe more of an impact 
mm. with anxious and depressed patients than than eating populations. But I, again, as you said, it's it's all speculation at this point. Understood. Understood. Uh, so the the first study concluded, um, and that brought out is the, is it the second study that you're in currently, or yeah. have you? Okay. Yeah. And can you can you tell me exactly what the the parameters are, what you're looking for? Sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm really pleased uh, to give an update on this study. Um, I I um, uh, announce uh, I, I I sort of introduced the idea at the last float conference that um, you know floating was safe in patients with eating disorders and it. It, you know that further study in um, further clinical trials in um, acutely ill individuals were warranted. So uh, I'm really pleased to sort of announce, I think here, uh, that we've started that study. Awesome. Um, and uh, in fact, we started um, recruiting our first floaters uh, last month. Okay. Awesome. So, um, are they getting into the tank? They're they're getting into the tank. It's in fact, they're right. and and they're they're jumping they're jumping right in uh, to, to start with. So oh, interesting. So. It was it was that um, safe feeling mm-hmm. based on your first round. Awesome. Yep. Yeah. So um, so this this is a study that um, it is uh, um, what's called an efficacy trial. So um, efficacy um, uh, refers to um, the effect. Uh, um, that the intervention has on a clinical endpoint or a clinical variable. Okay. So um, we were we were sufficiently impressed by the um, finding with body image disturbance um, that we decided to um, focus this next study um, uh, primarily on body image hmm. um, and to recruit a larger number of, of participants in this study, um, recruit a, a more acutely ill sample. So so we're actually recruiting people. From the inpatient eating disorders unit, which is two floors above us in the same building, nice. Uh, which is which is very convenient, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we're really um, asking the question: uh, Does floating um, acutely uh, reduce body image disturbance in acutely ill inpatients with anorexia nervosa? Wow, wow. And is this going to be a larger sample size as well, or just more specific? So it's it's a larger sample size. Uh, we're planning to recruit 66 participants, um, and uh, what we're doing is we're randomizing them to floating or um, to uh, uh, not floating, um, a condition called uh, usual care. So um, so basically, uh, it's an eight float study. Um, mm-hmm. If the if somebody was randomized to floating, they'll um, come down and, and float um, eight times uh, over the course of the study, uh, mm-hmm. twice a week. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll collect a lot of the same measurements that we did in the previous study. Um, and if uh, somebody is randomized to the usual care, uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll get the same measurements that we were, that we're getting from the people in the float group. Um, they're just not going to float. Yeah. So we'll measure their, you know, their body image, their body dissatisfaction, um, you know, before and after um, the same time period. So it's a 60-minute it's a float. Um, so they won't be doing anything in between, um, and the idea is to get a really stable estimate of of their baseline when you measure these variables um, to then compare does floating have uh, a, a significant um, uh, induce a significant uh, change or uh, or either a reduction uh, for body image uh, disturbance or an improvement for um, other variables like anxiety. Yeah. Um... 
gosh, I have so many questions. I, I think part of what I'm curious about, assuming that you see more statistical significance, what is the next step in your research? Or are you led by the research and need to see what it is first, what, what it shows? Yeah. Well, so, uh, so I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens with this study. Um, you know, this, this is a, um, uh, I think certainly it's, it's the most uh, advanced stage of clinical trial um, that, that we've done on, on floating in, in my lab. Um, it, it, it's sort of, um, it, it, it's helpful to kind of use uh, some of the language of clinical trials, uh, you know, from, that are used in other areas of, of research. So um, if, if you may have heard of like a phase one drug trial or phase two or phase mm -hmm. three, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so th that's a that's a framework that's used when you're studying um, new pharmacological agents, medications, sure. right? Sure. Um, so floating obviously is not a, a medication, but mm -hmm. um, in fact, a lot of people are interested in it because precisely it's not a medication, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but but the framework that we're using to study the effects of floating um, is uh, really best thought of in that similar framework. So sure. um, the the safety study that I described was kind of uh, similar to a phase one study, um, uh, maybe a, maybe an early phase two, uh, whereas an efficacy trial is is a phase three. Oh. Um, so uh, so this really is a phase three efficacy study. Um, if we see an effect here, um, you know, I think that um, that probably the next step would be uh, to publish it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but really, um, I think one of the next steps would be to uh, examine. Um, is that result replicable? So can we repeat it uh, with sure. another trial? Um, and, and, you know, maybe um, to even try to compare the effect with floating against um, the effect that you might uh, expect to find with, a, with a, um, some other kind of treatment for body image, right? Or some other kind of treatment for anxiety. Wouldn't and, that already exist? Um whether it's a pharmaceutical or I don't know yoga, some whatever, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. those things already exist. Why don't you already have those? So, numbers? so, so the idea there is um, is is kind of similar to doing a, a placebo-controlled study, mm -hmm. right? With like with drug studies, you can do placebo-controlled studies. So people taking um, the placebo believe that they're actually getting the medication, and it allows you to sort of uh, separate the effects that are related to the drug itself from the effects that are related to the expectation mm -hmm. of having improvement, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the placebo response is a real response. It has a physiological basis. It's not just something that's in people's head. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very powerful, uh, placebo analgesia uh, is actually as powerful as some painkillers, believe it or not. Wild, wild. Right? <laughs> so, um, so the idea with, with, uh, with comparing uh, a float study against another kind of treatment would be to really um, examine whether it ha floating has um, clinical efficacy above and beyond just the effects of expectation, right? Sure. In, in sure. other words, you know, is, it, it, does it have something to do with the float environment rather than someone's belief that being in this environment um, uh, would be helpful, right? Because mm -hmm. then that would help uh, differentiate some of the specific effects of floating. Uh, so going also going forward from from this study, um, do you think there would need to be any work on um, or 
maybe work isn't the right word, but pairing the float with the proper um, treatment plan as far as the therapist or psychologist and just how all that works together. How does one even begin to find the best pairing of yeah. those two things or the amount of times you should be floating? I remember Emily yeah. floated at two different float centers because she was embarrassed by how much she was floating. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, th- those are, so those are really good questions. Um, uh, those are definitely um, worthy of, of, I mean, if we find a signal in this study, um, I would say that's the kind of question that you could um, spend a lot of time uncovering with further research. Mm-hmm. Um, the question of number of floats or frequency of floating, I mean, uh, you know, that could be uh, the, the focus of a grant application. Um, the, you know, sometimes what happens, though, in, in clinical practice is if, if you have a study that suggests um, clinical utility, right, usefulness of a tool in treatment, mm-hmm. um, sometimes uh, clinicians don't wait and they will adopt uh, a, you know, a, a tool. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, it's not really for me to say whether, um, whether, you know, the community would be, the clinical community would be ready for that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. you know, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that, um, is probably going to be driven by individual practitioners or, or health systems or, okay. uh, or whatnot. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, what I would say is, uh, at least within our center and our eating disorder program, you know, you might stay tuned and, and sort of see what happens um, um, in follow-up. I, I can say that, you know, um, just our experience so far in running the study is that um, participants uh, do tend to enjoy floating. I mean, the, the, the feedback that we've gotten, we've had we've had several people who've completed the, um, the eight floats right now. Oh, okay. Um, uh, we haven't had anybody drop out. Um, okay. from the float, uh, yet, but it's probably, you know, law of, law of numbers. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It, it's inevitable in any, in any study. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think I'm just really excited to, um, to find out, um, whether, uh, and how floating might be useful as a tool in treatment. I, 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 I would emphasize that uh, I do think floating, um, the way we're studying it now, um, is really to, to look at how it might be useful as a tool to what's called augment treatment, to really kind of mm-hmm. add to existing treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's nothing uh, in the way that we're in investigating it um, to, su- to suggest that it should be a replacement for standard treatment. Right? Sure, sure. Um, going back to interoception, uh, is there any difference in how they're feeling internally um, digesting food? I know you had discussed, you know, Emily inside the float tank mm-hmm. feeling digesting food, but are you tracking anything uh, interoception-wise post or oh, you, mid? You can, you can bet we are. <laughs> and please go on. <laughs> so, so in the safety study, um, you know, what we found was was very consistent with. Um, with uh, the, the standard experience that you'll hear, which is the patients had higher um, heightened experiences of, of cardiac and respiratory sensations. Um, but interestingly, they did not see a, a substantial increase in uh, gastrointestinal sensations. Hmm. Um, now, they didn't see a decrease. We, we didn't see that in the study. We just, it was really more that there wasn't a, overall a change um, okay. with floating. And 
you know, I, it's, I had two float conferences we've spoken at. I was at LIBOR a long time ago. I don't know if you remember or not, but I, I actually was able to sit in on a, on a meeting mm-hmm. where they were talking about anorexia mm-hmm. um, sufferers. And I think um, it's, all, it's all kind of vague at this point, but almost kind of lacked awareness around their stomach area that their interoception of, of what was going on there was very low. Or maybe mm-hmm. I'm remembering it wrong and it was heightened. Can you clarify that for me yeah so so the 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 pattern that you typically see is that um, patients report heightened um, okay. experiences of, of stomach sensations um, both at rest um, and after meals um, and the same thing for for bladder um, and and gastrointestinal so like gut right mm-hmm. like like stool related sensations mm-hmm. uh, or cramping or bloating um, uh, the 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 common pattern is is for people to report heightened uh, okay. sensation, and so post floating or post. I mean, overall, the idea would be you would want that lower. Is that right? You, yeah, you certainly you cert you certainly wouldn't want um, uh, them to be in an environment that heightened those sensations, um, particularly in a in a, a negative manner, mm-hmm. right? An anxiogenic manner or a discomforting manner. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that. Uh, uh, People with anxiety disorders often have fears of experiencing um, changes in their breathing pattern or changes in their heartbeat sensations. Um, and the, the papers that uh, Dr. Feinstein published, um, you know, uh, really showed that, um, particularly in this in the second paper, that these patients um, had uh, anxious and depressed patients had heightened breathing changes uh, or heightened perception of breathing changes and heightened perception of their heartbeat, but actually at the same time had lower anxiety, right? Mm. So, so there's this sort of idea of like a, maybe a paradoxical shift, at least in, during the float, in how they related to those sensations. Um, so we don't really know with, with um, you know, the gut uh, if the same thing is happening, because we didn't see any lowering of the sensation okay. um, in the AN patients, but again, we didn't see any increase either. So, mm-hmm. um, in, in in some ways, it's sort of like no news is good news. Sure, sure. Very interesting. Um, you are going forward with these studies. Um, it, it's it's kind of funny. Like part of me thinks every researcher um, simply wants. To follow the numbers, they're, they're doing the research, um, mm-hmm. and if nothing's there, uh, it ends. But also, I know some people will get caught up in their research, and mm-hmm. they, they want it to work, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that your numbers are, they're real. They, mm-hmm. they seem exciting enough to go to a second stage. And mm-hmm. you, do you personally feel like there is a, a future here with floating for, I mean, I, I could go all the way out to say, like, for, for the rest of the world, but I mean, even yeah. just pulling it back in. Yeah. Well... I mean, at the end of the day, um, if there's one thing that we've learned in medicine, it's that if people find utility in something um, that helps them, um, if that's reliable, um, uh, and if you know, if it's uh, if it can if that can be demonstrated consistently, um, oftentimes you know those kinds of um, uh, experiences tend to be utilized in treatment for for any disorder, right, or any disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, what we're seeing right now with, um, with, uh, anorexia nervosa and with sort of anxiety and depression, um, is promising. Um, but it's, it's, 
and, and other people have also studied floating in, uh, in um, anxiety, um, in pain, right? So, I mean, you know, we're really fortunate that, that there is some evidence um, that is outside of our labs that we're able to build on. Sure. Um, but, but, you know, so far the studies that we're doing really focus on um, acute improvements, right? We, 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 you know, by which I mean, you know, we, we assess certain variables before they float and then we assess them after the float. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been looking a little bit to, to see how long do the effects of a float persist um, after the float is over. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one of the things that we really need to sort of define is um, what are the sustained effects of floating in these patient populations? So, right. you know, if somebody floats you know, a few times or more than a few times, right? Um, number to be determined. Sure. You know, how long um, uh, does, do they derive benefit from, mm-hmm. from it? If they derive benefit, right? Right, right. Um, so, so in this study, uh, I'll give you an, a, a concrete example. In the, in, the, in the anorexia nervosa study, we are doing some follow-up um, and we're going to look at um, their, the same symptoms um, six weeks after they finish their last float. Okay. Uh, and none of them are coming back. Are they invited to float again or they are cut off from the floats? Uh, so, yeah, so they, they um, after the eighth float, they stop floating. Um, and uh, they usually, uh, within a week or so, um, they'll be discharged from the inpatient unit. Okay. And um, they won't be invited back to float. Um, it's possible they may float, continue floating. I oh, mean, it's up sure. to them, right? Sure. Um, and we'll certainly assess for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, we're just sort of gonna gonna look at like, okay, you know, it's six weeks later. How are how are your symptoms doing? Yeah, um, we'll do the same thing at six months and the same thing at a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and and the kinds of things that start to get people really excited is when you can demonstrate sustained benefit, mm-hmm. right? So there was a there was a study um, uh, uh, I think out of uh, Sweden that looked at floating in, in people with self-reported generalized anxiety disorder, um, and they reported some sustained benefit at a longer-term follow-up. Mm. Um, so that kind of finding um, does make you interested because it suggests that, you know, there's some maybe some consolidation or there's some effect that yeah. persists. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the kind of thing that um, I'm going to be looking for. Um, it's the kind of thing that other um, researchers who have never heard of floating uh, when they read these articles, we'll be looking for. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and you know the the question is, um, do we see it? Um, if we do see it, what are the implications? Mm-hmm. If we don't see it, um, does that doesn't necessarily you know invalidate it? It just may mean that you know how how can this tool be most effectively utilized for this patient population um, on a more time limited basis? And something that just came up for me about the uh, patient population. Who are these people? Are these people um, who are their family is forcing them in here? Are they volunteering to be here in treatment? Are they, mm-hmm. you know, have they hit quote unquote like uh, rock bottom and they've mm-hmm. decided I need help? Where are they at? Yeah, so um, so they're all going to be people who are in treatment voluntarily. Okay. Um, they're all people who uh, enter the study voluntarily on their own. Sure, right? sure. Um, and um, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of where they are in their treatment, um, you know, we we 
allow uh, a, we're allowing actually a pretty broad range. So we're allowing um, the the age criteria are from age 13 up to 40. Okay. And we haven't enrolled any teenagers yet, um, but um, we're certainly mm-hmm. able to do so. Um, if uh, and we we have actually an adult and an, as well as an adolescent um, inpatient unit upstairs. So. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing about anorexia nervosa is that the uh, disorder usually um, starts in um, uh, around uh, puberty, um, so in adolescence. Um, some people can have a later onset. Um, so, you know, if, if we have somebody that's 13 or 14 in the study, you know, chances are their disorder um, uh, emerged relatively recently or at least yeah. was recognized recently. Sure. Um, but if we have somebody, say, who's 38, Right, it's possible that maybe that's somebody who's struggled with an eating disorder for twenty years or, or yeah. more. Right. Um, so we're we're measuring these things. We're we're at this point. Um, we you know we've decided to kind of open it to all comers. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and it, and the nice thing about that is that um, the sample that we're recruiting is pretty representative in that regard of the general population of people mm-hmm. that come in for treatment. And is that mostly women, or is it, has it been all women? Uh, so this study, we only recruit women, um, and and uh, the the uh, factoid that supports that is that um, anorexia nervosa um, affects um, women about ten times as often as men. Sure, um, there are men with anorexia nervosa. It's mm-hmm. just that they're pretty uncommon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one other question I wanted to ask you that's actually outside of of the study, which is, um, you mentioned uh, grants, mm-hmm. and I'm curious, uh, how do you get funding? I, I know it's it's got to be different if you're a, a pharmacist, if you could, in the pharma business, I feel like there's a lot of money that could influx research. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that floating has that kind of uh, uh, financial backing to mm-hmm. it. Um, do you, is that money, um, I'm not exactly sure how to ask this, but uh, are you getting grant money? Is there more coming in for this research? Is that a concern at all going forward? Yeah. So, um, I mean, these are that in, in many ways that's that's the most important question uh, you've right. asked uh, in, in terms <laughs> right. of in terms of pragmatic follow up because sure. um, you know in order to to do research um, you know you need to have resources and uh, most of the research that I do um, is funded um, from two sources. Uh, one is um, your tax dollars, so thank you, uh, <laughs> and thank you to all the listeners who pay taxes. Right. And right, uh, you know, oh, we all do. Us small business owners, <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> I mean, the na- so the National Institutes of Health, which is a government uh, organization um, uh, that um, that funds research um, through um, tax revenue, right? Okay. Um, uh, so, so that's, that's where, um, a, a substantial proportion of the research in my lab comes from. Um, and, uh, it's incredibly, uh, hard to get. Um, you have to ask really good questions. You have to convince, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people who review grants who may have nothing to do with the, uh, exact type of work that you do, sure. um, that, that your ideas are good and that the data supports, um, you know, the, the, the steps that you want to take. Sure. Um, the other uh, the other branch is um, uh, private foundation funding, um, uh, um, and there are also public foundations as well um, uh, that fund us. But but in this case, I mean th- those those funds are are uh, a different. It's a different source. 
Um, you know, uh, I'll give you an example. There's, um, there's like an Alzheimer's foundation, right? If I was studying Alzheimer's disease, I might apply. Mm -hmm. You know, there's also like, a, you know, the, the Dana Cancer Institute. Um, you know, if I was a cancer researcher, I might apply for funding from, from that organization. Um, it, it's not that that funding is type of funding is necessarily easier to get than NIH funding. It's just a different source. Um, and uh, at this point, I'm not aware uh, that there's that there's a, a float foundation out there. Um, not that I'm aware of, aware of uh, either now. But but you know, and I mean, I think the the there's there's sort of two other sources that I'll mention just for posterity. Um, one is uh, philanthropy. So um, hmm. sometimes uh, there are people who have resources who um, have had a particularly noteworthy experience. Um, or think that there's a cause that, that is really worth funding. And so, so that actually can sometimes be incredibly transformative for research. Mm. Mm. Um, and then the other is actually um, uh, relates to what you mentioned, which is um, industry. So, um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry or there are, you know, device manufacturers and whatnot, um, you know, who can, um, who can fund research. And I know that some of the work that um, we've done uh, at LIBOR has had uh, funding from the Epsom Salt Council, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I don't know if that exactly translates to industry, but it, it's certainly, um, you know, sure uh, industry related. So, <laughs> yeah. Great. Uh, is there anything else that you want to extend out to the community while you're on today? Um, no, I, I, you know, I'm, I just want to uh, express um, my continuing uh, gratitude to this community for uh, the support that um, and, and the warm welcome that, that I've received. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very excited to be uh, studying uh, floating and, and, and the role that it may have in uh, eating disorders and in other psychiatric disorders. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think that... Um, you know, we're really just in the beginning stages of, of, of learning about um, how floating might be useful. Wonderful. Agreed. I definitely certainly agree with that. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I truly appreciate it. Thanks for sharing what you're doing. Uh, when should we expect to be able to see or hear more about this? <laughs> Another good question. So, uh, <laughs> So I will uh, give an update about this um, study at the float conference. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I probably should leave it at that. Um, Wonderful. Understood. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> it, it's really, you know, we're, again, we're in the beginning phases of this. So uh, the fact that we're up and running, um, I'm, I'm really excited to announce. And, um, you know, it's going to definitely stay tuned for more. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you again. And uh, again, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before we go, I want to give a shout out to FloatAway. FloatAway actually has a manufacturing site now in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they're making it easier and easier to get a FloatAway float tank in the U.S., but also just for anybody to find floating, especially out there in Tulsa. Uh, they're making the largest circular float pool on the market named the Serenity, named by Dr. Justin Feinstein, actually, and it's actually aimed at clinical use. Uh, those float tanks are amazing. I think the one I floated in was uh, eight feet in diameter. And that was incredible. As I've said a million times, it's the best float I've ever had and uh, just a beautiful experience. So the fact that you were able to get those in your float centers just blows my mind. Uh, and um, beyond that, wonderful people. Colin and Ginny are absolutely amazing. They can help you. They're not going to ask for any money uh, to uh, simply 
get their their services and just be able to, to help you out on your journey. They're great people to know. Um, and they also do make some incredible float tanks. So there is also that. They're making float cabins, float arounds. I own the Tranquility smaller float tank. Fits in our center. It's perfect. Floataway.com is where you want to go. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for supporting the show to our patrons. Really appreciate it. Uh, we are available for consulting if you're interested. Artofthefloat.com forward slash consulting will get you started. We can help you get your float center up and operational, save you time, money, stress, relationships. <laughs> we, we, we help. Uh, and um, you can also support us on Amazon. There's a link on our webpage. If you want, go ahead and click that link. Bookmark it anytime you shop on Amazon. A few ducats come our way. And thanks to Kim Hannon for taking show notes. Really appreciate it every single week. So remember, there's an infinite amount to find in the presence of nothing, and we'll see you next week.